It's always the struggles that define you in life. Look back at your life, whether you're 13 years old or 80 years old, and it's always the hard time, the hardest times that made you who you are, not the easiest times. That's filmmaker Casey Neistat this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Rich Roll, fearless leader of this intrepid podcast, and we are on a mission, and that mission is to help you live and be better. So each week, I sit down for a Vulcan mind meld with the best and the brightest across all categories of life, health, and in this case, creativity and excellence, always excellence, as a means to help you unlock and unleash the best, most authentic version of yourself on the world at large. So thanks for subscribing to the show on iTunes. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for subscribing to my newsletter, for clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. And thank you for picking up a copy of our new book, The Plant Power Way, out in bookstores everywhere this week. So exciting. Hey, Julie. Hi, Rich. Julie's joining me for uh, the intro. <laughs> Hi, I'm Julie Pyatt. How's it going? I'm, it's going great. My actually. wife and uh, mother of my children and co-author of our new book. That's right. Awesome. How are you feeling? Feeling really great, actually. By the time people listen to this, the, the book is going to be out. I so this is like a it. super huge week for us. Wow. It's a good thing I practiced yoga this morning. Are you calm? I'm calm. There's I'm in, a lot of I'm activity in the zone. going on right now. And I'm feeling very loved and very uh, supported. Yeah, there's a lot of support out there. Um, right now, we are at number 43 on Amazon <laughs> of all books. You guys, that's which amazing. Which is so crazy, right? Of all books, of all books being sold, there's only 42 other books that of are all, like... Of all categories. Yeah, all categories. That's so crazy. Which is insane. And it's even more insane because... We have not had one iota, not one shred of national media coverage. This is true. The Today Show hasn't called. They don't want us. Good Morning America uh, said, you know, maybe not so interested. Uh, You know, all the kind of like national magazines, all that kind of stuff. We don't have any of that. But you know what we have? We have you guys. We have a microphone. (laughs) And we have you guys. So this is really a testament to the true power of community to rally behind an idea uh, that people want to support. And we just feel so loved by all of you guys who have risen up and shown your support for all the work that we're trying to do and what we're trying to put out to the world. So thank you so much for, uh, for rising up. Yeah. And for being just for being a part of the community and actually, you know, being a part of affecting a change through, you know, collective um, intention and consciousness and, you know, just will to, um, you know, shift the status quo and also just, you know, support another human being. And uh, we, we would not be standing here without any of you. And um, we are just filled with gratitude and we do not take any any percent, any just moment of any of this for granted. And so just thank you so much for coming out and for supporting us. We, we feel just immensely blessed. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, this is the power of the internet, right? I mean, we're able to connect with people all over the world through the work that we're doing through this podcast and social media and to be able to, you know, affect people in a way where they want to support what we're doing. I mean, this is really, 
yeah, we have a book coming out. We want it to be successful. It would be amazing if it hit the New York Times bestseller list. It's definitely a goal, but, but you know, this is more, it, this is much more than that. It's, it's, it's much more than us or this book. It's about a movement. You know, it's like America needs help. People are sick. We need better lifestyle options and, and, you know, pathways to access a healthier, better version of ourselves. This is our little offering, you know, in that conversation and to see people say, yeah, you know, we do need more of this, like, let's support this. And then, you know, in turn, you know, we'll support somebody else who's doing something similar. And it's just amazing. You know, it's just amazing the power of social media and the podcast and everything that we're doing that, uh, that we could be sitting in this place. It's a, it's a very privileged place to be. I don't take it for granted. It comes with a great deal of responsibility and I'm just extremely great, grateful. Yeah. And also to know that, you know, what we are sharing and our transparency and, you know, our, you know, courage and maybe foolishness to, uh, to be so open about our lives and about our relationship and about our family and, and uh, to know that it is inspiring and it's giving people, you know, something to hold on to as they go through their own transformation. I mean, I think this week was, you know, in addition to having just the most amazing support and, you know, rallying from all of you from the plant power community. And, um, we also received some of the most deeply, you know, profoundly touching emails of people going through through, you know, true life challenges, you know, serious, serious stuff, you know, life or death and, you know, wanting to connect with us deep, you know, more deeply. And, you know, the book is, it's not just a cookbook. It is basically a window into our life. Um, we have shared as transparently and as openly in this book as we do on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, our hope is that you feel as if we have invited you into our home and we've saved a spot for you at our family table. Um, and so, um, anyway, uh, I feel, I feel mighty, um, with all of your support. We feel mighty yeah. with all of your support. Such an exciting week. So thanks you guys. And on the, uh, subject of emails that we get, uh, I thought I would read a fan email that came in thinking about making this kind of like a regular. Could be great, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a guy called Matt. I'm not going to use his last name because he sent me, you know, I, I don't know that he, 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 he didn't say that I had permission to read it, so I'm not going to give you his last name. But he sent a really nice uh, letter that I'm just going to read, and he it goes like this. Uh, Rich, I owe you a great deal of thanks. I started listening to your podcast a few months back, and it has changed my life, and that is not hyperbole, brother. Not only does your story just resonate with me, we have walked similar paths, but you have inspired me to pursue my dreams. I do not think the same message from someone else would have rung so true in my ears. It is all about the way in which you articulate your thoughts and ideas. It is so skillful and elegant, my man. Your words come through the earbuds with such clarity, and you have this incredible skill for distilling the ideas of others into digestible pieces, which just makes sense. Well done, and keep up the excellent work. So that's really cool. Thank you, Matt, for that very um, nice letter. Uh, it, it feels really good to know that um, that what we're putting out is connecting in, in 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 that kind of way. You know, not just in a perfunctory kind of oh, that was a fun podcast, but that actually people are are getting something out of it and implementing it into their lives for the better. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, cool. beautifully said. Uh, and on the subject of uh, the power of community and the internet and kind of. Um, trying to get a message out outside the typical channels of mainstream media like television. We have a special guest this week, uh, my friend Casey Neistat. 
I can call him my friend, I think. I think so. Can I think I he's my, my family's favorite filmmaker. And that <laughs> extends down uh, to our little girls, Mathis and Jaya, our big Casey fans. Right. Casey's awesome. Uh, he is, if you're, if you're not familiar with who Casey is, he is the impresario of YouTube. He is the king of Snapchat. Uh, he, he's pretty much a social media maven. Um, this guy puts out content through YouTube, through Snapchat, through all, you know, through Instagram, through all his social media channels that is just so, I don't, I, it's hard to describe. Um, he shares himself authentically and, and very transparently. And, uh, there's just something about, uh, the, the quality of his content and the message that he's putting out that really resonates with me. I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, I did a podcast with him. It must've been a year and a half ago ago or so. So we're going to sit down um, with him and hear a little bit from him in a minute. And this is a guy who is super smart. He's an insightful cat. He's got a gigantic imagination. He's got a huge work ethic, which I respect. And he just has a cool perspective on life, work, entrepreneurship. And if you're not onto his vibe, uh, you should be. Uh, So we'll get more into Casey in a second. Uh, But first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich... That On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a Birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. 
Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, uh, on to today's guest. Casey Neistat, how do you, how would you describe Casey? Your, um, your inspiration in who you want to be. You know, it's so fun. No, <laughs> I don't want to be Casey. I love what he does and I love following mm. him. And what's funny in the conversation, he talks about how much he hates that word inspiration. He does. Sorry, yeah, he Casey. Like I haven't met you yet. Sorry to bum you out. <laughs> he is inspiring, but I don't think that he really uh, enjoys that no, mantle. I- and he doesn't, he doesn't like the idea of inspiration. He's all about like work, work ethic and like following through. And right. that's kind of what we talk about well, today. I mean, really what I think is, is, you know, what I see from him is I see that he was sort of a differently oriented child and somehow he had something within him that allowed him to respect himself and kind of go his own way. And he made that decision and that's served him well. Yeah, you know, for sure. So he's I mean, definitely it's, unique. It is inspiring. Sorry, Casey. Sorry, to Casey. see uh, somebody who kind of didn't fit the mold and went out and blazed his own trail and through a, a tremendous amount of hard work. Because people look at him and his life and his studio and they want to be him. And I don't think that they see how hard this guy works. Like he just, he is a workhorse, you know, and I have a lot of respect for that. And he's, his whole thing is like, I don't care about ideas. I care about execution. I care about follow through. And that's kind of what he represents. And he's just constantly putting out amazing videos on YouTube. He does a Snapchat story every single day. I think he's the best thing on Snapchat. And he's just an artist with a ton of creative energy telling really relatable personal stories, uh, to help us all kind of access and find the adventure in life. You know, this idea of, of above all investing in experience, which I really like. And, and you know, to be bold, to do more, which is his sort of ethos uh, that is tattooed on his, fore, his forearm. It says <laughs> do more on his forearm. Hmm. I first became aware of him in like 2010. He had a 
television show on HBO called The Neistat Brothers that he did with his brother Van that was produced by a guy that I went to high school with, Tom Scott. It was a really cool show that kind of revealed his DIY sensibility, and he's gone on to work with huge brands like Nike. He made an amazing uh, YouTube video called Make It Count that's kind of legendary on, on YouTube. I'll embed that in uh, the show notes on the episode page for for uh, for this episode, and then he made another really cool video that's one of my favorites, um, which was intended to be a marketing promotional video for the movie The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Fox, 20th Century Fox, contacted him and said, "Would you make a video uh, that would help us kind of market this movie?" They gave him a budget of twenty five thousand dollars, and um, instead of making a, a, a video about the movie. He went to Takloban uh, in Southeast Asia and basically took all that money, the $25,000, and put it towards aid to the, the um, survivors of the, um, I want to say hurricane. It wasn't a hurricane. It was a, uh, it was a typhoon, right, to the survivors there. And that's a very touching, beautiful, uh, beautiful film. Uh, when I sat down with him, uh, last winter, uh, the next day he went out and there was a huge snowstorm and he went snowboarding all over New York City and that was a movie that went viral overnight, which was insane and super fun. And about a month ago, he started a daily vlog, which is basically he's making a new YouTube video every single day of just kind of what he's doing in his life. And the quality of these is extraordinary given, given the fact that he's doing one every single day. And they're, they're quite irresistible. And like you said, our kids love them. Jaya, who's seven, always watches Casey's videos. She's Casey's stickers on her computers. <laughs> she put Casey's stickers all Better over her laptop. Better watch out, Casey. She's on, your, she's on your heels. I know. She's getting ready to start her own YouTube channel. I sent Casey a photo of uh, Jaya. Uh, with the laptop in her lap with all his stickers all over her laptop as she was watching one of his videos that that he loved. Um, But it's interesting. It makes you wonder, like, okay, well, what motivated him to suddenly start doing a daily vlog after all this time? And, And I have a theory about this, and this is pure speculation, but Casey is in the process of starting a new business, and he's been very cagey about, uh, you know, what it is. He hasn't said anything publicly about what this new business is. It's all very hush-hush. He's been spending a lot of time at MIT, at the Media Lab there, where he's a fellow. He's been hanging out with a lot of super smart techie dudes, guys who wear, like, Google Glass. When I ran into him outside a studio, he was with a couple guys. They're all wearing Google Glass. (laughs) And he's extremely... I think this is something people don't understand, is that he's extremely savvy when it comes to not just social media but tech hardware and software. He really implicitly understands what works, what doesn't, why, which platforms fall short, why they fall short. And if I had to guess, and again, this is total speculation, I would venture to say that he just might be hatching maybe his own new social sharing platform, video-based, of course. I think it's a big idea. Whatever he's working on, I think is big. Um, you know, a platform that would specifically meet his criteria of what would be great because he's very exacting. You know, I don't know. I what do you be, think the name of it I would could be? I could be totally wrong. Who knows? Um, and it's not like Casey answers this question in the podcast. Before we started, I said, can you talk about your new business? He's like, no, I really can't. Um, you know, no boy, no, couldn't do it. But I will say this and we'll get into the interview. I really think that Casey is truly one of the more relevant cultural voices out there right now. And it was really cool to sit down with him once again. 
with this very important caveat. I thought we were going to talk for about 90 minutes, which is my typical podcast interview time. Uh, but about 45 minutes into the interview, just as I felt like we were starting to hit a groove, I kind of felt like we got off on a little bit of a disjointed start, but we were kind of just starting to get into it. And I was feeling good about where the conversation was headed. He looks at his watch and he goes, I got to go. <laughs> like, he just like, I have to leave. I got another meeting. And I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, we're right in the middle of this. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but hey, what are you going to do? Uh, it was fun to be able to spend at least a little bit of time. Uh, and as you will hear at the end of uh, the podcast, it sort of comes to a comedic, uh, very abrupt halt <laughs> at, the, at the end. Because he has to do more. You can almost hear me wondering, like, what is going on? Uh, so I'm not sure I got the full Casey experience I was hoping for, but nonetheless, it's full of some gems. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, and I'm just sort of preparing you for how it ends. Anyway, I'm going to go. We're going to be in New York City again in June. I'm hoping uh, I can pick it up where it left off and go another round with Casey. So what do you say we step into the incredible lower Manhattan studio of Casey Neistat? This is a studio that Wired Magazine has called one of the most compulsively organized, ridiculously customized, and mind-bogglingly gear-saturated spaces on Planet Awesome. And I concur. It's a pretty special place. Casey's a really special guy. So let's uh, step into his world and see what he's all about. Cool? Sounds great. The first time we did this was the day before the original snowpocalypse. I don't know if you remember, but it was... I was in here and you were getting ready for the big snow. And then the next morning is when you went out and made the snowboarding video. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and then I was back here a month ago and we were going to do this. And that was when we were supposed to get Snowpocalypse 2, right? So you're like, sorry, man. Yeah, <laughs> no can do on the podcast. I got to get ready for the snowstorm. The irony is that night I had like an entire crew. Um, an entire like movie shoot crew. We had my crazy truck ready to drive around the city after uh -huh. traffic was closed. We went so far as to get a hotel room right next to the studio. That way in the morning, we didn't have to worry about the crew showing up at 5 a.m. to get uh -huh. started. Like we were, could not have been more prepared. So you're going to go super next level on I mean, it? so next level. <laughs> what were and you going to do? The snow just never showed up. I know. Um, you know, I don't like to talk about what I was going to do. It's such a loser. Yeah. All right. It well, didn't I happen. Mean, we gave it our best shot. Mother Nature screwed <laughs> yeah. us over. And then you had this like really uh, kind of unsatisfying like drive around the city in your jeep trying to find snow that wasn't there we just wanted to know like how did they screw it up so bad it's incredible right that in 2015 i mean is that a reaction to you know the hurricane and all of that like everybody was on such incredible high alert like this was going to be i mean literally in my hotel they slid a notice under the door saying we're shutting down you're not going to get made service you better go get groceries because everything's going to be shut down and i'm like are you telling me that like the guy the korean guy in the bodega is not going to show up like come on the we're whole, in manhattan the whole thing pissed me off it made me angry because they shut down the subway system for the first time in 80 years due to snow and it's just like, that's not what New York City is. Right. It's like, we're not, we can persevere through anything. Don't prematurely shut all this stuff down. Nothing's happened yet. It's snow. Like, it was 28 <laughs> inches in, in 96. Like, the city was fine. The silver lining for me was I got up and I was like, I'm going to run the city. Like, and just like the idea of like running down the middle of Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue with no car, because there was a ban on like any non-essential cars or transportation being in the city. And it was so quiet and you could just, 
it was kind of a beautiful thing to do that. We did that same thing, but in my gigantic eight miles to the gallon monster truck <laughs> yeah. going up Park Avenue. Breaking 90... the law, right? Because you weren't supposed to. Well, I mean, yeah. if you're going to break the law, you might as well go all the way. So it was like, there were no other cars, so we didn't have to stop at stoplights. Right. And there were no people out. So yeah, we just, it was, it was fun. I know. So you're going to have to wait until next year, I guess, for <laughs> yeah. that. So let's talk about Emirates Airlines. Yeah, it's a pretty special experience. I know you're, you're partial to American, but uh, I've been, I went to the Middle East three times in the last year and uh, flying that airline. My only analogy for that is it's like being on, in like Kim Kardashian's Bentley or something like that. Yeah, like, look, to, just to, <laughs> to qualify my partiality towards American Airlines, it's purely based on like intelligent, considered business considerations. Mm-hmm not any loyalty to the airline because it's a good airline. Like, all U.S. airlines should be ashamed of, maybe with the exception of a JetBlue, but they should be ashamed of themselves at just how atrocious customer service is, at how old and busted their planes are, mm-hmm. at how they nickel and dime you for services. It's just a night. I spend my life on airplanes. And every time I travel outside of the States and you experience other airlines where they're just trying, they're trying uh-huh. to do something good. Um, so anyways, I don't, uh, I don't know that I'm actually prepared to endorse American Airlines or any other airline. I gotcha. Um, especially while I'm picking on airlines. British Airlines, I think, is maybe worse than any even U.S. provider because they're just <laughs> so bad. But Emirates is like next level. It's pretty it was a it's special. It's pretty crazy it was a special experience, experience flying yeah. on that. Did you see how they have uh, like the separate entrance for first class so that nobody has to even actually interact with those people and they get separate. Oh, you do. You were on like a smaller commuter. Plane, no, no, no. Right? It was a triple seven. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. But you know, it's not that. Like, I think that, I don't think that it's, it's about the amenities. It's for me, it's just about how you're treated as a human being. Mm-hmm. And when you fly in the States, it's like the attitude that is, that is put on you from the airline is like, fuck you. How dare you show up on mm-hmm. my airplane? Sit in your seat. Yeah, sit in your seat, eyes down, and don't you dare talk to me like I'm a person. Like that's how you're made to feel. Mm-hmm. You're made to feel like you're doing something wrong. And I find like Emirates is not the only one, but Emirates is certainly like at the top of the list where they like treat you like a human being. They mm-hmm. look you in the eye when they speak to you. Um, Japan Airways the same way. Like my even my kid, he flew on it once, and he always brings it up how nice the woman was because she saved his food for him while he was asleep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like they treat you like a human being. Right. And I don't know why we've drifted so far away from that when it comes to customer service in the States. Well, customer service in general across all sort of platforms is the bane of my existence and probably most people. I mean, I think we're in a, we're in a culture right now where we've become sort of subservient to these gatekeepers at customer service that control our day and our hours and our time spent. So whether you have to call AT&T and change your cell phone plan or whatever it is, you're held hostage by, by these people for everything that we need to do. And I think that's a different, like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a new thing. It's a new thing. It's, it's, um, I'm sure it has to do with like bureaucratization of these process, uh, processes. And in any event, it ends up sucking for us. Mm-hmm. So when you do encounter something that feels like good customer service, um, it's a you're lovely... Like ama- you're amazed, you know, but it should just be that way. It should just right? be that way. Yeah, it's like the I difference know. between flying first class and flying in coach isn't that first class is so great. It's just that coach is so bad. Uh-huh. 
that it's just like how it should be when they, you know, smile at you and they give you like a, a terrible microwave plate of spaghetti <laughs> instead of being in the back where you get like you just get glass eyed and then you get to pay mm-hmm. five ninety nine for like a pack of M and M's. Right. So how was the experience in the Middle East for you? Um, so I was in the Middle East. Uh, I was giving a talk in Dubai for Google. Um, and then I was in Doha, in Qatar, giving a talk at, at VCU, which is Virginia Commonwealth University. It has a campus oh, over it's there. Like their overseas program. That's correct. And it's, it's mostly comprised, I think it's about 50% comprised of actual Qataris. And then the rest is sort of people from the region. And then there's a very small minority of people from overseas. Uh-huh. But it was amazing. It was like an absolutely eye-opening, wonderful experience. Um, the biggest takeaway for me is I was speaking at a design school in Qatar and all the students, uh, the, the vast majority of students were, were women, were girls. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is that design in the, in the Middle East is culturally regarded as more of a feminine mm-hmm. profession oh, than a masculine one. And that to me was like the most exciting thing I could ever hear. Because what that translates to me and what I said to the girls when I was speaking there is that that is opportunity. Yeah. That misconception, which is nothing more than a gross misconception because the rest of the world knows that design is absolutely... Um, you know, it's ambiguous. It's not mm-hmm. a feminine or masculine practice, but it's something that is, uh, that is, you know, that, that everyone should be mm-hmm. enthusiastic about. So the fact that these girls had this opportunity, um, to me was just like, it was tremendously exciting and something that I was, I was, I was really happy to be a part of. Well, empowering too, in a, in a culture traditionally that is, you know, not so friendly towards, you know, sort of the upward mobility of, of women. Yeah, I, I guess so. You know, I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand the culture well enough to really get into the nuances of that. But it certainly is like, you know, a lot of these young girls were were wearing veils. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you couldn't see their face, and I was still chatting them up and hearing about how excited they get about designing right. a skateboard and the work that they're doing is so uplifting. Um, you know, and then their professors kind of pull me aside and they say, you know, a lot of these women culturally, all they've ever been raised as is to you know get married and have have children. Um, and certainly seeing this education that's being, that they now have access to means that there are, you know, more opportunities for them. There are more paths for them. And that's something that was, um, I don't know, it was tremendously exciting for me. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I went, I haven't been there, but I went to Bahrain. I went to three cities in Saudi Arabia. I went to Lebanon, which was cool. Like I've been to some of those, some of that, that area and just being to immerse yourself in that culture. I mean, it couldn't be more different than here, but just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is so many of the Qatar students there are just inherently very wealthy just by default. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these students there that have no reason, no financial motivation to learn or pursue any profession. Um, and you would think, ostensibly, that means that they would be less engaged or not, not really care. And I found the opposite to be the truth. Like, I found that these, the students that were from there, especially the ones from affluent backgrounds, were more engaged and more excited about what they were learning and the potential that that might yield um, than what I've, I've seen almost anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, it was, it was a really fantastic to have the opportunity to spend time with them. And when you get up and you give these talks, it seems like you're giving more and more talks these days. Like, is it the same talk or what is the message? Like, what's the core, like, thesis of what you're trying to communicate? Uh, I think you said it right in the, that there is always one sort of core thesis and then that, uh, how that's built on is appropriated for each audience. So, you know, in Dubai, speaking on, on Google's behalf or speaking at a Google event, 
Um, it's the core thesis. And then what's built around that is how I was able to apply what I do to advertising and how that works on a platform like YouTube. So it's mm-hmm. fairly specific. And then speaking with a group of students, it's the core thesis. And then built around that is how to leverage an understanding to build a career. So the core of it is always the same. And then how that story is appropriate is, is dependent on what the audience is. Mm-hmm. And what that core is, I guess I would, I would, I would, uh, describe that i would abbreviate that as it's 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 working in the creative space is to work um in a space where there is no defined path if you want to be a doctor if you want to be a car mechanic if you want to be a um uh you know if you if if you want to be a, a butcher or even want to be a um anything where there is sort of a defined path here is how you achieve that you can, you can follow that path, and education is a great way to have access to that path, and you will, um, provided you do it well, you will succeed in that space. And the exception to that rule is, is anything that's creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and creative can manifest itself in myriad ways, from filmmaking, in my case, to being a painter, to being a sculptor, to being, um, you know, I think even to being a politician and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, and, and to being like a, a, a chef and to being a, a designer, to being an architect. Those are all creative endeavors. And I think the, the key to succeeding in any, of, in any creative space is that you have to define your own path. Mm-hmm. And that by default is, is sort of a, a contrary position to what education is. And I think that young people have expectations when they show up at, at school, at, at university, at college, um, and they want to be filmmakers, and they want to be artists, and they want to be painters, and they want to be writers, that the school will define that path for them. Here is how you become a successful artist. And the truth is, like, how many students does NYU film graduate every year? Mm-hmm. And how many people get Oscars every year? Mm-hmm. How many people actually succeed in the film world? And the truth is, education um, is a tool, is an incredibly valuable tool. Education is, is maybe the most valuable tool to help you find that path, but education alone will not provide you with that path. Mm-hmm. The same could be said for experience. The same could be said for things like internships and apprenticeships. And the same could be said for having access. And the same could be said for resources and money and the opportunity to travel. The same could be said for owning great cameras or owning great paintbrushes mm-hmm. or reading a lot of books. Every one of these is a tool that can help you pave that path. Mm-hmm. But that path is up to you and you alone to define. Mm-hmm. It, and it's a, it's a very ephemeral answer because I think, you know, people don't say, they don't look to a surgeon and say, oh my God, how do I become like you? You know, the path is sort of self-evident, like, well, these are the steps that you take to, you know, sort of fulfill that role. But I'm sure not a day goes by where people aren't, you know, asking you, like, how do I, how do I have the life you have? How do I do what you do? Uh, They're, they're still looking for that, like, step-by-step process. And it's sort of an outward looking perspective as opposed to an inward looking perspective, like the Warner Herzog model of like, you know, go work in a, you know, go work in a cannery, go like do something like have life experiences that can inform the expression of what it is that you're trying to, you know, communicate. Yeah, I think I think you said that very, very well. Um, Yeah. And look, part of this is why I always focus on that is it's an expression of my own frustration. Because I get these emails from kids every day, and I don't fault them for sending right. me these emails. What kind of camera are you using? Uh, no, not even that. But how do I get to do what you do? Mm-hmm. And it's like hard for me. I understand where that's coming from. It's hard for me not to be insulted, as if I could explain to you via an email what it takes 
you know, what it took for me to be successful. And this is a path that you could then emulate. Like this has been a 15 year battle for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm still feel like I'm standing at the bottom of, of a mountain staring up. Um, but it's been 15 years of nothing but focus and hard work and determination to have what like little, little tiny taste of, of success or recognition that I have thus far. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly not something that's, I would describe as transferable. Looking for the life hack, the hack. Yeah, it doesn't gonna, exist. How can I shortcut my way to doing what you're doing? Yeah, and like, look, there are some, there are some nuggets, some truths in there that I think can help others find their path. And these are generic truths. These are truths that I'm happy to say in front of an audience, but ones that could also appear on like a motivational poster hang- underneath mm-hmm. a picture of a cat hanging by one <laughs> hand off a branch. But yeah. it's, you know, it, it's things like in the creative space, if what you're doing, if you're doing it the same way others are doing it, you're doing it wrong. That's mm-hmm. a fact. You want to be a designer, an artist, a painter, a filmmaker. Or if you're following, if you're doing it the way someone else is already doing it, that means you've already failed. You're doing it wrong. If there are a thousand sheep headed south on a road and you jump in line with those sheep and you think that by heading south you're going to find success, like no chance. There's no chance. You got to jump out of line and run north. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a truth. Mm-hmm. And then applying that, making, applying that to something that's actionable is where it gets really scary. But those are, those are generic ideas that absolutely help promote discovering one's path. I feel like you have a pretty strong conviction about what you're doing why you're doing it and like where you're heading. But there's a juxtaposition of that with kind of being in faith that like, if you're just sort of propelling yourself forward and, and actively engaged in your own creative voice, that is going to lead you somewhere. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really optimistic way of looking at it. Um, maybe even a generous way of looking at it. I think a more, uh, a, a less romantic perspective on that is like, an absolute disregard for failure. Um, like, honestly, who cares? We are, we are like healthy human beings that were born in the United States of America. Like we won the lottery on life. If you look at the history of humanity, if you look back 10,000 years to now, no one has ever in the history of ever had it as easy as we've had it. And it's like, what does absolute abysmal failure look like to us? Like, I mean, what is the worst case failure for me in everything that I'm doing? It means like I'm dirt poor. I move out of New York City. I live in a trailer park and I'm on welfare Mm -hmm. collecting food stamps to feed my children. Like that's exactly where I was when I started my career. But that's rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's not such a horrible place. Like I've, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've handed out morphine in, in Uganda before to people dying of AIDS. Like I've been, mm-hmm. I've met Afghanis in the middle of Afghanistan during a war before. Like I've, I've had the luxury of being exposed to what true destitution looks like. Um, you know, I've wandered the streets of Taklaban five days after the worst typhoon in the history of, of mother nature destroyed their, their life, their lives. Like that is rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And we're so far from that. Like what my business fails. And all of a sudden, like, I'm be living on the streets of the Philippines, like with my house destroyed and my family taken away from me, like no chance. Mm-hmm. No, it means like I don't get to buy a fancy car. Right. And it's like, is that <clears throat> something to fear? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So with that, you know, winning lotto ticket on life, I have a sense of obligation to always take the, the path of most of greatest resistance. Right. I mean, while our culture prioritizes security and comfort and relaxation and the easy life, and these are not, you know, these are not good messages, I don't think. And I think the fact that you, you know, had the upbringing that you did and had the experiences that you did where you struggled early on are really gifts that allow you to then really understand that, you know, failure is not that big of a deal. Like, you're, it's not going to be that bad. And, you know, Tyler... 
my son you met last time he was here. He's not with me on this trip, but uh, he turns 20 tomorrow. And a couple of years ago, like we were having a really hard time. We thought we were going to lose our house. Like we didn't, we were in a, a weird place where things like were not working very well, but we were trying to kind of do new and different things with our lives more based on like, you know, the things that I'm doing now and passion and stuff. And, and we went and lived in Hawaii in yurts on a farm for three months on the North shore of Kauai. And we weren't sure whether we were going to come back to LA or whether our ha- we were going to be able to save our house and all these sorts of things. And, and it was a very tenuous period of time. And Tyler said something to me recently where it was just a couple months ago. He's like, that was the best thing ever. You know, he's like, cause I know like, that was actually an awesome experience and we were together and we did it. And like, if that's the worst, like if I had to go live in a yurt, you know, and basically sleep on a cot, like, so what? That was an awesome time. I had fun. And like, so that informs his perspective of the world, like to take additional risks and to, you know, pursue what's most important to him as opposed to, you know, taking the safe route. It's, it's always the struggles that define you in life. Look back at your life, whether you're 13 years old or 80 years old, and it's Mm -hmm. always the hard time, the hardest times that made you who you are, not the easiest times. And I think knowing that, you should pursue the struggle. Like a a really smart friend of mine, friend of yours, Tom Mm -hmm. Scott, said Uh to me, like, you should pursue poverty in your 20s. And that is such like a valuable piece of information. What that means is like you get out of college, you don't take the job that pays you 45 grand a year and then take that money and get an apartment and sign a lease for $700 a month and then right. take, that, take that money and like what's left over and go lease a brand new Honda that, that restricts you to $300 a month. Then you're 23 years old, you have all of these bills, you're accruing more debt and like the handcuffs are set, they're locked, the key's been thrown away. How do you get away from that? Instead, say, screw it and seek poverty. That mm-hmm. way you can trust that every decision you make, is, you make is, is based on a passion and desire to actually do it, not some sort of false um, financial uh, opportunity that's been ingrained in us sort of culturally. Because mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a cultural misconception. I think that that's wrong. Yeah. I made all those mistakes. And so when I talk to young people, it's the same thing. It's live lean, invest in adventure. Yeah, because the truth is you won't always be able to. It's like if you think a car and uh, rent is restrictive, like wait till you have kids. Like wait till you have things that are actually of consequence, not just not just failure to, to make payment on your car, but things that are actually of consequence. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. 
Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. But you said something that I wanted to touch on um, when you said culturally we're sort of taught to pursue comfort, security, um, and relaxation. And I hate that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate all of those things. Like, but secu- look at any television commercial, any billboard. Any, I agree. You know. Like relaxation is my least favorite thing in the world. I hate it. <laughs> like it's my, my my second least favorite thing is vacation. I hate it. Like the idea of not being productive in life is something that just like it, it, it makes me cringe. And uh, at the risk of sounding overly patriotic or, or jingoistic, which is not my intention, but like America, we were built on like this generation that came back from war after saving the world. And then became like this 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 nation of, of of workers that you know like we own manufacturing in the world we exported more oil and more goods than anywhere else on planet Earth and like we did that like by working hard and that was like this wonderful life like that's what defined and built America was that time after the war. Um, and but that also was the birth of the middle class, and that's where this idea of like having the good life started to creep in, I think. Totally, and that's the danger, is that it's not sustainable. You cannot sustain an ethos of hard work and hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, hunger is something that goes away the moment you're fed. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I mean, it's something I struggle with my own kid is like, Owen's 17 now, and he's a wonderful boy, and he gets great marks in school and all that, but like I look at him, and it's like, shit, I screwed up here. Like I always made sure he's had whatever he wants and he's always felt safe. And instead I should have thrown him to the sharks. Um, Yeah, but he's gone on so many adventures. I mean, he's so worldly compared to most kids his age. I'm not worried about him at the least. I just, I know the struggles that I got to experience when I was his age. 
So there was this girl. Um, I'm digressing right now. No, I hope that's good. okay, Rich. Yeah. There was this girl that I know, um, and she talked to my brother Van and me. This is years ago. She's probably 25. She's absolutely the most beautiful girl, super rich girl. And she had this, like, what do I do with my life thing that she came and talked to Van and me about. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I don't know if it was Van or it was me who, like, sort of laid it down. Or we said, stop taking money from your parents. Like, close or get away from your trust fund. Get a job in a restaurant waiting tables. And she looked at us like, how dare insane. you? Yeah, that sounds like happen. the worst thing ever. And we looked at her and we're like, you want to be a writer? How are you supposed to write if you don't understand life? Like, if you have no actual exposure to life? Do you know what percentage of people actually get to live this dilettante lifestyle that you've that is all you know? Like, instead, get out there. Like, understand what it means to live. Like, mm-hmm. when, when Werner Herzog says that the application process for his fictitious film school would be to walk from Paris to Berlin and keep a diary, and uh-huh. that diary is your application, I understand where he comes from. And when he says that he won't teach... He won't teach filmmaking in his film school. He'll teach you how to box. Right. I get that. It's the Hemingway school, you know? Oh, my God, yeah. So, I mean, this idea of vacation, really. I mean, I think that, that when, you're, when you're doing what you love, when you're actively engaged in your life, you don't feel the need to escape that, you know? But when you're stuck in a job that you hate, you know, that's where the idea of, like, taking a break or escaping to go to some beach starts to crop in and sound attractive. Yeah, and, and I get it. And it's, look, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this diatribe that I'm laying on you right now, like, is, is risky to say, because I think it's really open to misinterpretation. And it means that everyone should drop what they're doing and go become an mm-hmm. artist and travel the world. And that's wrong. I just think it's about finding what you truly love. And I look at my very best friend through high school, who remains one of my closest friends ever. And he's worked in a restaurant the last 17, 18 years. Um, he still washes dishes one night a week. And he has a family and he has a small house. And he has, a, he has two cars and a big screen TV. And I look at him and it's like, it's hard for me not to look at him and be like, why don't you leave that job and go like find your passion? But the truth is how passion manifested for him was having this sense of security mm-hmm. and having his family and having a, a wife that he loves and having a, two children now that he, that he loves watching grow up. And I look at him, and he is a guy who's living his dream. And he's very he's most certainly lower middle class, living in a small house, living in a crowded neighborhood, working in a restaurant. But he's, he's happy most of the time, and he's found his dream. So that happiness and that dream can manifest in myriad ways. It doesn't mean you have to be... You know, you have to be traveling the world and jumping off of bridges and, and being, you know, being sensational. But I just think it's, it's being true to yourself and making sure you're doing something that you do actually love. Right. But I think that that process, like kind of <laughs> unpacking, you know, unboxing, like what is your passion? Like what is it that gives you a heartbeat? I feel like most people are so disconnected. We're just on a habit trail track that there's not a lot of emphasis on kind of looking internally to try to understand what that might be you know so a lot of people say oh i want your life but they may not really know what it is that is the thing for them because that that takes a little bit of work yeah and you described it very well i always say like in life you should only be doing one of two things the first is figuring out what it is you love what your passion is and two is realizing it and the truth is very very few people ever do the first thing Mm because figuring out is much harder than actually doing it you know what you want, you just do it. Like if you can mm-hmm. see those goalposts at the end of the field, you just kick the ball through it and you've done it. Mm-hmm. But if there's no goalposts, you have no idea where to go. And what happens is 
during that search, you do things like you go to school, you do things like you go on trips, you do things like you find experiences and you have relationships and you get dumped and you have these ups and downs in life. But then what happens is, is life takes over and you all of a sudden you're not a student and all of a sudden you have obligations and all of a sudden you have bills and all of a sudden you have a wife and then all of a sudden you have kids mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're 43 years old and you've got a mortgage and a house and babies and cars and car payments and it's, school payments. It's not an option anymore. And the option's gone. And it's been it's it's no longer the idea of figuring out it's no longer there because life has handed you something else. Life has made the determination for you. And I think that's why it's very important to sort of always hit the reset button and say, like, am I happy? Do I love what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. And that answer can be yes for someone like my best friend that I described, who's like, yeah, he 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 waits tables and he is a bartender and he's a dishwasher. He's also a people person. He loves being surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he makes an okay living. He doesn't worry about money. Like he stops, looks at his life and says, yes, I love what I'm doing. And he's not flying, you know, first class to Dubai because that's not where his passion is. Right. His passion <laughs> right, is being right. at home with his family. So I think it's about asking yourself that question and, that, and being true to yourself. I think it's also about paying attention. And I think that when, you know, we're talking about obstacles or low moments, it's about valuing those rather than, like you said so eloquently, trying to sidestep them or avoid them, right? Like my wife always says, like, don't, you know, if somebody's being dismantled, like they lost their job or they lose all their money or something terrible happens in their life, like that's their sacred moment. Like don't rob them of that moment because that is fertile ground for really doing that kind of inward um, work to try to say, all right, well, what now? Like, what is meaningful to me? Like, what can I, how can I move in a different trajectory where I can express something that's more authentic to who I would like to be? Like, I think those are amazing opportunities to change your life as opposed to travesties or disasters. I mean, not to, like you said, like take away from the real life kind of, you know, pressures that things like that entail. But I also think it's really um, easy for us to sit here and be dismissive of them in retrospect because we're right in retrospect they're not a big deal but when you're in the middle of those moments mm-hmm. of the tough times in life like the last thing you want to yeah, hear I know, from some, I know, I know. some fucking guy with a podcast is that like <laughs> this is the most treasured moment of your life it's like how dare you but, but yes- the truth is it is yeah, yeah yeah yesterday i did a last night i had an unbelievable podcast conversation with this guy tom harden who uh was a hedge fund manager and got busted for crossing the line and became he, – he got tapped on the shoulder by the FBI and he became an informant. And his wiretapping activities led to over two dozen convictions and like toppled one of the biggest hedge fund managers in New York, right? And so his whole – but basically he still got a felony conviction. He avoided jail and he just got sentenced like two weeks ago and his whole life is destroyed. Like he can never pursue that job and he can't get employed. He's got two little kids. And he discovered running, you know, he discovered running and he's like become this super passionate ultra runner. And I asked him, I said, you know, if you could go back to that life, would you? And he was like, no, you know, like he's found something as a result of that process that the guy wakes up every morning, he meditates, he drinks yerba mate, he goes running (laughs) twice a day. Like he lives a completely different life now that he, I wouldn't say he's in a place where he's found gratitude for that quite yet, but but he has found a way to um, find peace for himself, and there's beauty in that. Yeah, I, you know, I got run over by a car when I was 26, like stupid motorcycle situation, and uh-huh. m- m- 
when I was like in the hospital, my leg, my femur was broken in like 26 places, something crazy like that. And the doctor said, you will, he said, unequivocally, you'll never run again. And prior to that, I wasn't like an unhealthy person, but I definitely smoked a pack a day and I liked to drink and party and Mm. like, I didn't really care. And I have that sense of invincibility and that's when I stopped smoking and that's when I started running. And, you know, I've run 22 marathons since then. And my focus now is all about health. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really compartmentalized version of what we're discussing. It's like if you'd walked into the hospital bed while I'm laying there, like in traction, screaming my head off, crying because I can't move and my leg's destroyed, and said, Casey, this is going to be a really valuable moment in your life, <laughs> I would have punched you in the stomach yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. told security to carry you out. But the truth is, yeah, like looking back mm-hmm. at that, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. It's made me, it made me, forced me to realize how reckless I was with my own health prior to that. Um, and I think every low point in my life, I can look back and say the same thing. Um, but I also think there's a difference between seeing these, seeing the struggles in life as opportunities and seeing them as, uh, seeing yourself as the victim. Mm-hmm. And I think we largely, um, and I say this, I can hear myself sounding cynical when I say this, but I think we live in a largely kind of entitled um, world, not world, but culture. Our culture specifically, the people we're surrounded with, have a sense of entitlement. Um, and that sense of entitlement means that when I'm experiencing a struggle, it's someone else's fault. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm a victim. Um, and I hate that. I hate that more than anything. I think there are victims in this world. I think you look at people who are sick and they shouldn't be sick. Those people are victims. And that, that's a horrible, horrible thing. But if you're facing a struggle in life that's overcomable, like you're no victim. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, pull your boots up. Like, work hard. Fight through it. Well, generally, the person played a part in it happening anyway. I would say generally is nice of you to say. I'd say um, always, always. Um, Absolutely. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Um, well, let's take it back a little bit. Uh, you know, and the last time we sat down, we kind of went through, you know, the, the life story, the origin story. But for people that are new to the podcast, um, <clears throat> you know, how did this all begin? We're sitting in this extraordinary studio, which, by the way, I'll, trans- I'll, I'll transgress a little bit. Last Sunday, um, 
I picked up the New York Times and I was reading through the magazine and I saw the article on Tom Sachs, who – did you see that last Sunday's New York Times? So there's, a, there's an article about um, – there's like a retrospective of his work or like a, an installation on his boombox art. And I was reading it. I'm familiar with his art. But I was noticing like in the images of some of his pieces – the through line between kind of his aesthetic and like what you've built here in the studio. Like I can, when I look at like that wall over there on the back wall, I'm like, that's very, I can see the influence of Tom on, you know, kind of how you've, you know, crafted how you work and see the world. Is that fair? Um, Yeah. I think, you know, I worked, I was his assistant when I was like 19 years old and I moved to New York city and I worked in his studio and I remember I was there for about six months before he said to me, Casey, you are the first assistant I've ever had who can come up with ideas for my artwork. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've like thought about that so much since then. And I also, you know, when I first started working for him, Van and I, my brother and I worked for him, we were getting paid $10 an hour and we weren't allowed in his studio. Mm-hmm. We worked in this like terrible warehouse three blocks away because we were too <laughs> much like of a pain in the ass to be in his studio. But when we were there unsupervised, we started making movies about his artwork. And then mm-hmm. those movies, like once he discovered what we were doing, those movies became a big part of his work. Mm-hmm. And um, pre, this is all pre-YouTube. Yeah, this is like 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think there is this sort of connection between someone like him, who is, he's a sculptor, and someone like me, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Um, when you sort of look back at what are the things that excite us, and I think that you know, at the time when I first started working for him and he bestows a compliment, like, you can come up with ideas for my work. What that actually means is, like, we both like to make things with our hands. We both sort of were raised in a similar environment. We both have a very similar set of uh, aesthetic principles and goals and things like that. And that's what, that's why we worked together so successfully, um, you know, when I was just a kid and he mm-hmm. was a successful artist. But, um, yeah, I think that, I think that that idea of, of, handmade and making things is something that I've always been tremendously passionate about. Mm-hmm. You know, I made a telephone headset when I was eight years old uh. using a toothbrush, two pair of broken headphones, <laughs> um, and like a bunch of tape and it worked. <clears throat> like it totally worked. And I think it was that sort of precedent of, of us growing up in a house where everything was broken and us always having to learn how to fix things that led to such a sort of a successful relationship with someone like Tom and then seeing how he's able to do something similar to that but build a career around it was um was certainly eye opening. Mm-hmm. I would imagine empowering just to be able to observe what he what he was able to create and then inspire you to do your own version of that in the filmmaking context. I just read who said it? I think it was Chuck Close. I'm responding to your use of the word inspiration. I hate the word inspiration. It's like my least favorite word. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to figure out why I have such disdain for the word inspiration. And I think it's a a couple of things. But one, I think it's way overused. Um, Way overused. Everyone uses it. Two, it's because like advertising has taken over that word, that idea. And like everything now is meant to inspire. And like every piece of clickbait nonsense that's in your and my um, Facebook feed is like this inspiring moment when like a puppy saves a fucking chicken from a well Mm -hmm. and like I hate the word inspire and then I recently read this amazing piece by Chuck Close where it starts and this is the only 
part of the piece I remember because I committed this quote to memory, um, where he says, inspirations for amateurs, the rest of us just show up and get to work. Uh-huh. And that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. When I get tweets that are like, Casey, what inspires you to make the work? I said, there's no moment of inspiration. It's all just a labor. And it's via the process of creation that the idea is actually birth that's actually mm-hmm. hatched it's never a moment of inspiration and then the product is there mm-hmm. it's like everything i do everything i make um i think that's true for most people in, in in the creative world is is a product of a process and that process invariably involves a lot of hard work but there's never this idea of a moment of inspiration where the inspiration carries you through and has the product be uh, be at the finish line well i think inspiration is easy too and and in some respects it's almost lazy like if you scroll through instagram right like suddenly now there's instead of images it's like quotes on top of some kind of background right with like these platitudes and maybe i'm cynical but like i just can't i'm not down with that like i just find that to be um not insulting but just sort of like really come on like i think there's People want to be inspired. People are very easily inspired. I don't think it's that hard to inspire people, but I don't think that inspiration often translates into action. Yeah, you know, and that's the I'm that's not... the gap. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's inspiring, and then they just go back and do whatever they're doing. Yeah, on my flight to Dubai last week, I watched the movie Gandhi, <clears throat> and I was very inspired at the end of that movie. And the moment it was over, I didn't become <laughs> like a political yeah. radical and try to change the world. The moment that movie was over, I like opened up my laptop and went back to like editing whatever stupid little movie I'm making next. Mm-hmm. Inspiration is absolutely cheap. And I think it's important. I think inspiration and ideas are important. But I, I think they're both very cheap and very easy. And, and they're powerful. And that's why people probably throw them around so much. But I think that there's, there's real danger in that. I mean, the caveat that I would make is that you know, look, you live your life incredibly transparently. You're sharing it on YouTube, you're sharing it on Snapchat. And I want to talk a little bit about that some more. But, you know, the manner in which you conduct yourself is inspiring to a lot of people. And, you know, the truth is, is that there probably are people out there who who see your example and then make a different choice. So it's not that it's not that it doesn't have merit, you know. So totally. And I, I agree with I agree with that entirely and look i i by learning about other people i can remember the first time reading like the autobiography of malcolm x and i mean i've read that book several times but the the first time i read that it it inspired me it moved me in such a way that like was absolutely a call to action you know knowing that he entered prison as a criminal and he left uh he left prison as a as a extremely well-educated autodidact because he sat up all night every night reading every book in the prison library like that showed me that like my own lack of formal education was no barrier to my my seeking out of success and like no inspiration is an incredibly incredibly powerful powerful emotion and powerful thing and i don't mean to diminish that by saying I hate the word inspiration. Mm -hmm. I just mean the way that it's used today culturally, the way it's used today in popular culture, and the way that advertising has bastardized that word has made it diminish its value to me. So if you want to explain the effects of it or talk about the effects of it or the impact of it, or you want to talk about what it may lead to or what actions it may cause, that is tremendously exciting for me. Mm -hmm. But to talk about inspiration, especially in the form of like text in my Instagram feed. It's just it's eye rolling, pandering nonsense <laughs> that I don't have time for, and it's like it's cheap and easy. Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk about kind of the evolution of, of what you've been doing. I mean, the last time that we sat down, that was pre-Snapchat, right? So in the last, that was a little over a year ago. So um, now there's this thing called Snapchat and you were like on it, like from day one, since they uh, revealed that added functionality of being able to create stories you were immediately on top of that. And to this day, I think you've posted one almost every day. You've only missed a few, a few days. And how has that, like, what was that choice about? And how has that kind of informed what you do? Well, look, I, I think if you look at the trajectory of my career, I was making movies in the early 2000s before the internet. So I called them fine art and distributed them in museums and galleries around the world. And and then, you know, I was in television and I had a show on HBO and I made feature films that I put into movie theaters. And then I discovered YouTube in like 2010 and the potential of that. So I pivoted to YouTube. Um, and, you know, Snapchat is something that I'm super excited about. But Twitter and Instagram are things that I'm excited about as well. I've always been sort of agnostic when it comes to what mediums I use to, to disseminate ideas and perspectives that I believe in. And I think that you know, YouTube enabled me to all of a sudden reach a global audience and do it in an entirely democratic, egalitarian way. Um, if if HBO is elitist and that you have to pay for it and have access to it and have a television and all these barriers that existed, that exist still, um, you know, I think that YouTube is antithetical to that. Anyone with an internet mm-hmm. connection can now access my work. Therefore, the only barrier between them and my work is their decision to engage or not engage in the work. And that motivates me to make it better. So they choose to engage. And I love that idea. And I think what Snapchat enables me to do um, is to do that on a much smaller scale. It's the preciousness of the of, of creating movies is diminished, um, and that I can just share sort of little tiny compartmentalized experiences that I've had using this distribution medium, mm-hmm. um, Instagram, and I, it enables me to do that with a still image, and Twitter enables me to do that with words, um, and Snapchat enables me to do that with these little creations that involves drawing on the screen and putting silly <laughs> geo filters and, and taking pictures and doing all these other things. But yeah, I mean, there's there's rarely a day that goes by where I don't see something that interests me enough to want to share it. And my host of tools becomes a YouTube movie, no, uh, an Instagram post, maybe a Twitter post, mm-hmm. okay, perfect. Or a Snapchat post is now part of that that conversation. So I think, yeah, it's in, in the long sort of lineage of social tools and the dissemination of information from one to many. I think Snapchat's a really powerful tool and a really, really like um, pivotal step in sort right. of the evolution of that mm-hmm. in distancing ourselves from needing an established uh, medium to disseminate ideas and instead just putting all of the power into that of the of the people. Right, or no intermediary, right, because – Essentially, what you do is is remove any kind of gatekeeper between you and your audience. Whether you're creating, you know, whether you're creating a, a commercial like what you did for J. Crew, like there's no, I mean, you are the agency, you're the production company, you're the on-air talent, you're the editor, and and ultimately. <clears throat> It's your story that kind of uh, that almost trumps the product itself in terms of the narratives that you're spinning. So there's this there's this kind of um, I don't know how you doing. <laughs> We're in the middle. We're Snapchatting now. Uh, that just totally threw off my train of thought. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in a, in a commercial aspect of what you do, uh, 
it's this new it's this new idea of you know traditionally in advertising there's the agency there's the client there's you know there's the product there's the production company which is often different and you're sort of all of those things yeah look I, I think that in the established means of of I don't know communication of sharing call it radio or television or any of those there's always this filtration process that exists between you the creator and then the audience and that filtration process if it's a movie that means producers distributors financiers um, theater chains I and mean, there's a million different fil- levels to that filter that bureaucratization of the spirit of the original idea um, but when you look at something like I don't know written word um, or you look at something like a, a painting like Picasso makes a painting, he hangs it on the wall, then you go and you look at it. It means there's nothing between you and his idea. It's pure. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I think with... Um, but the accessibility of that requires you to travel to go see it. Absolutely. So I think what technology has afforded us the opportunity to do is diminish that bureaucratization, diminish that. And all of a sudden now, because of technology, you have the opportunity to reach an audience directly with zero filtration in between you and that audience. And that is a magical, amazing thing that we've mm-hmm. seen governments overthrown because of Twitter and we've seen like, um, you know, all kinds of promotion of empathy because of tools like Instagram and, and you know, we're seeing, I think Snapchat is, is uh, again, part of that evolution in sort of connecting people and, and making this uh, direct communication between you and people that choose to receive whatever content it is you're sharing but that decision is theirs alone and not right. based on this buffer that's in between. Right. They're not force-fed a commercial they don't want to watch. They have to opt in. They have to desire to see it. They're, they're, they're volunteering for it. That's right. Rich, I got to go. You have to leave? Yeah. I got to stop this podcast. Do you? How long have what we been talking? 45 minutes. Yeah, you gotta go? I think, yeah, I got to go, man. I got okay. meetings. <laughs> All right, dude. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wait, I that's know. a good point to end on, right? Yeah. Okay. Very abrupt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a man right. of many things, but but subtlety has never really been one of them. I got you, man. All right, hold on a second, though. I have to at least get one Snapchat of you talking, right? Okay, do you want me to actually say something important? Yeah, I'll tell you, this this podcast is now over. This I'm trying to end this podcast, but Rich won't <laughs> stop Snapchatting in the middle of it. All right. Um, you can, I can hear you posting that podcast. I can hear it trying to connect yeah, to that. Yeah, I know. He's making that buzzing noise. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for the time. Yeah, this is awesome. I'll see you again next time there's a blizzard in New York City. I know. Right on. All right, man. Peace. Um, great, Rich. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. All right. See what I'm saying? It just kind of ended right there. But hey, what are you going to do? It was still fun, right? I hope you guys enjoyed that. Casey's awesome. Uh, if you're not already a follower, I would highly suggest checking out his YouTube page, his Snapchat, his Instagram, his Twitter, all that good stuff. He's Casey Neistat, N-E-I-S-T-A-T, pretty much everywhere on the internet. If you Google him, it's insane. For all the information, education, products, nutritional products, tools, resources, inspiration you need to take your health, your wellness, your fitness, and self-actualization to the next level, go to richroll.com. Check out our nutrition products, our educational products, our books, our garments, Julie's meditation program, all good stuff. If you're into online courses, we've got two, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, which is a program that Julie and I did. Everything you need to know. It'd be a good like, sort of companion piece to the plant power way, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also I did one called The Art of Living with Purpose. 
that's about goal setting and the inside work and how to set yourself uh, up for a better life trajectory. Both of those courses are on mindbodygreen.com. You can find them pretty easy. Click on video courses on the homepage there. Uh, If you like the podcast, give us a review on iTunes. Pick up the free app to listen to episodes older than the most recent 50 that you find on iTunes. Keep supporting the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends. Pick up the Plant Power Way. Tell your friends about the Plant Power Way. You know what would be cool? And let's close it down with this. Mm-hmm. So the book is going to ship on uh, people who pre-order the book. A lot of them are going to get the book on their doorstep on Tuesday yes. by the time they're listening to this. So pick it up, make a recipe from the book, share that recipe and your experience of using the book on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Instagram. all that kind of stuff. Let us know how the recipes are doing and let us know online how you're enjoying the book, what's your favorite recipe, post us, tag us, we'll share it, we'll throw you the love, throw us the love, it's all good. We're just having a huge global internet party, (laughs) right? That'd be great. All right, you guys, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Namaste.